this morning, I want to follow through again from last week. And it, it, the last couple of weeks, every, every week, I feel like I'm following through from the previous week. And last week we looked at Paul the Apostle's conversion, how he came to know the Lord, the impact that had literally on the world, and more significantly, the, the importance of a personal, personal conversion. And Christians are people who have personally decided, I like Jerry's definition of decided, uh, you've killed off any other paths, decided to follow Jesus, and that is the day you are converted or born again. And you know the term born again is a word Jesus used. Born again. A Christian is born again. Jesus doesn't, uh, the Father God doesn't have grandchildren. He has children. You have the rights of a child, literally the same rights as Jesus, to access the presence of the Father in the name of Jesus. It's quite incredible. So this morning... I thought we looked at the start of Paul the Apostle's um, walk with the Lord. This morning I want to look at what I've entitled this word, the Apostle Paul's last words. And we're going to look at 2 Timothy. So we looked last week at how he started. We're going to look at how he finished. And you know folks, in the Christian life, it doesn't matter how you start, it matters how you finish. Some of you are sitting here and saying, man, I've had a couple of false starts and... You know, I kind of tried to start in fifth gear. As you know, a car doesn't go well in fifth gear. And we, we kind of, the car choked off. And I've been around a couple of blocks, okay? But I'm here now. And folks, it doesn't matter how you start. It matters how you finish. And so in 2 Timothy, this book called 2 Timothy, where Paul's writing to his spiritual son Timothy, in this book, most Bible scholars agree this was his last book that he wrote. Uh, the last letter he wrote to Timothy, and this was in about the year 67. So Paul was in his late 60s. Paul was actually a similar age to Jesus. And he's in his late 60s. He's in jail in Rome. And his last letter he writes to his spiritual son. And we're going to look at uh, some of the words that he wrote that are just so immortal. They're so inspiring. And so, Lord, I want to thank you for this life. I thank you for the life of Paul the Apostle, a life well lived. Thank you that he finished strong, Lord. There's so many people around us that don't finish strong, that wipe out. And God, it is discouraging to see that happen. But God, we have awesome examples in Scripture. We have awesome examples around us of people who have finished strong, who are finishing strong. And God, may we live our whole lives devoted to you, not just a portion of our lives, Lord. And Lord, may we finish strong. I pray this now, and I'll pray this again in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I maybe should have entitled this message, Finishing Strong, from a book I read quite a few years ago by Steve Farrar, entitled Finishing Strong. And um, I've actually, I read, I dug the book out, and I was reading again, and I'm going to share some, of, some stuff from, from the book. Uh, but it's become such a cry of mine. Now, I enjoy running. Uh, I don't run as much as uh, Cass and Josh. <laughs> um, and uh, if you don't know, they, they did literally a mad run. They ran from Joburg to Cape Town. They finished on Friday. And uh, we, we celebrate that. But, you know, for me, I run fairly regularly. But I've, I've taken to doing something whenever I do a run. My last, let's say, 50 meters, I turn up the gas and I just go a little bit faster. Now, I know I'm not as fast as maybe you go all of the time. But for me, I turn up the gas a little bit. And it's a prophetic act of, Lord, I want to finish strong. 
I want to finish this life strong. So let's just start off. We're going to dive into 2 Timothy. And what I'm giving you on the next slide is this is from the introduction to 2 Timothy from the Passion Bible. So let's just read and... Um, Oh, hang on. Oh, there we go. Sorry. I, I, I jumped slides. We were looking. Just Paul wrote 13 books of the Bible. These are them. The previous slide. Um, he wrote Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. So this is in the order they occur in Scripture, not in chronological order. As I said, 2 Timothy, uh, most Bible scholars agree he wrote this book uh, literally he, um, we're not sure how how long before he, he died but uh, it was his last uh, writing that we have so let's look a bit about Timothy give you a background just uh, I love I love seeing the context uh, I mean I love the words of scripture alone but I love to just know uh, what was it like when when he wrote these words so we're reading over there and it's on your screen this could be called the last will and testament of Paul the Apostle. Paul's heart burns as he looks to the end of his journey and knows that death is near. He stirs our conscience with this emotional letter. As you read 2 Timothy, try to picture Paul sitting in prison, in a prison cell. He misses his wonderful disciple, Timothy. Picture Timothy reading this letter with a longing deep within to hear these final words from his spiritual dad. Their love is deep. Their commitment to the gospel is powerful. And their desire to see the world reached with the love of Christ is real. Next slide. Many have recognized this letter as the most personal and heartfelt of all of Paul's writings. He names 23 individuals, both friends and foes, in this letter by name. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, there's some guys in there that literally... Their claim to fame is that they deserted the great apostle Paul. Uh, I don't think it'll be very nice when you get to heaven and say, I'm in the Bible. Oh yeah, where? What did you do? <laughs> oh, I deserted Paul the apostle. <laughs> Not a great claim to fame. But folks, let me just say, that's just life. Hey, that's just life. He opens his heart and gives intimate details of his life. And he shares his desire to see Timothy advance in his calling. Paul instructs Timothy to pick up where he left off by carrying out his ministry with dedication and faithfully preaching the apostolic message. Paul offers his own life as an example of the kind of faithfulness to ministry and godliness he's urging Timothy to follow. So there's a basic introduction. Of course, reading the actual words that the great apostle wrote is better than reading an introduction, but I, I like reading introductions just to get an overview and, and like, uh, what's this about? So, so I encourage you, some, sometimes very helpful to do that. So what I want to do now, I want to jump to the words in uh, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. Don't jump there yet. I'll say when to go there. And these words, many people believe, are, it's like, this is the, like, the cherry on the cake of what he says over here. It is like his, his, his final words. These would nearly be words, if he had a tombstone, these words, uh, particularly verse 7, would probably be the words that would be on his tombstone. And, and I'm sure for many people, they have chosen, many believers over the centuries have chosen these words to say, this is what I want on my tombstone one day. So he says here in chapter 4, chapter is the last chapter of the last book of, of, of Paul. He says, 
For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. The time has come for my departure. The context is, folks, he's literally sitting in death row. And uh, I was reading about the cell. Uh, uh, historians, if you go to Rome, apparently you can visit the cell that Paul was kept in. It literally was a cave in the ground. It was this rock chamber with a hole right in the top where they would lower food down. And apparently this was just not a place you particularly wanted to be in winter in Europe, was, was, was in this little cave that he was being kept in. So very difficult circumstances. And it's so hard to believe. You read these words. It's hard to believe he's in such physical difficult circumstances. So, so he says this, For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. So folks, at this time, uh, the, the, the Emperor Nero is the, the Caesar of Rome. He's the king of Rome, the emperor. And he was brutal. And historians agree. We don't know for sure, but historians agree that he was, um, he was executed by Nero. But because he was a Roman citizen, he would not have been crucified. That was, kept, uh, that was done to non-Roman non, uh, non citizens. But I, I, won't, I won't share ex exactly how he was possibly executed because I know one, some of you do want to still have lunch today. But, you know, let me just say the Romans weren't, weren't a very friendly, nice people to anybody who was in prison. And this is where he is. And he says, and the time has come for my departure. One guy said, you know, it's kind of like he's sitting at the airport lounge, except you, you know where he's sitting. And he's waiting... For the call, you know that call we go ding dong, <laughs> flight S2345 is uh, the gate, the boarding gates have now opened. Uh, please, you know, uh, please can you board? He's waiting for that call to enter the, the plane that's going to take him to heaven. That's literally where he is, just to give you a context. And he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. You know, drink offering in, in the Old Testament, there were a number of offerings that they had to do in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, there were, there were a lot of food sacrifices, meat sacrifice, etc. But a drink offering was a particular, uh, particular kind of offering. And very often what that would be is they would take very valuable wine. Now, when I say wine, folks, in those days to produce wine was really hard work. You know, Israel, those nations, they're very dry. And for the, for the vines to have enough rain so they can produce a crop, and the process of producing that wine was a very laborious process. And then there were times where you're offering to the Lord, you would literally bring that wine that you've taken, you know, literally years to produce from, from planting the grape, the grape vines, nurturing it, producing the vine, to then take this wine that you produced years of labor and literally pour it into the desert sand was a huge act of sacrifice and surrender to the Lord. And he's referring to that. And remember the story of David, where David was talking to his mighty men and he said, Oh, how I long to drink the waters of Bethlehem. Do you remember that? And one of his, uh, his mighty men, they broke through the Philistine lines and they went and they grabbed water from the well of Bethlehem and they brought it to David. 
And David was so struck by these guys had risked their lives to bring him some water from the well of Bethlehem. And he said, I cannot drink this water because it nearly cost your lives. And he poured it out as a drink offering. Folks, you know, the, the, the thing about this kind of an offering, in the natural it looks like a waste. But before God, it's beautiful. You know that story about David pouring out that water is in Scripture today. And we look at that and we say, wow. He was honoring the men by saying, I cannot drink this water that, cost, that nearly cost you your lives. And folks, this is, I want to ask you. You know, all of our lives are being poured out. Um, I've actually got, oh, there's a slide. It's three on. Can you see it? I've got an hourglass there. Sorry, I should have put it all after this. Can you go to that one, Bavalwa? There's an hourglass, that one. He said, I'm, being, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And I thought of an hourglass. You know, an hourglass, just the, 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 the sand just keeps pouring out of that glass relentlessly. And you know, that's what's happening to you and my lives right now. Your hourglass is running. My hourglass is running. And I don't know if my hourglass will run out five months from now, 15 months from now. For some of you, it could be 50 years from now. I don't know, but our hourglasses are running. The reality is your life is being poured out. The question is, where are you pouring your life out? The question is, is your life counting for eternity? Is your life counting for eternity? You could be playing video games and your hourglass is ticking. You could be spending time praying for somebody who you know is wasting their lives playing video games. And I want to say, would you rather pray for somebody who's wasting their life playing video games? Would you, and, and listen, there are times I enjoy playing video games because I'm just like, ah, need a break. Okay, there are times, I, you're not sitting, you play video games. I'm not saying that. But if that is the measure of your life, you know, the amazing thing is, this great apostle has no regret. He has no regret in his last days. So he's in his late 60s here. Let's go back to that previous slide. And we're going to verse uh, 7 on the previous slide. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What beautiful words. How many of you folks, I was reading that and I was saying, wow. Lord, I pray that I would be able to have those words on my tombstone one day. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What amazing words. And I, and I want to I wanna say this. Folks, this is a man who's run his race hard. For his first 30 years of his life, he wasn't serving God. And in this, the last 30, 40 years of, of his life, he's been serving God wholeheartedly. And he says this, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. There's no regret. And folks, you know, regret is a killer. Jenny, Jenny and I have often, in so many times in our lives, said, regret is not a place we want to live at. We would rather invest our lives and pour our, our lives out for God than one day wish... Or regret that we had done X, Y, or Z with our lives. I want to say, and, and he says three things. I fought the good fight. He, the word fight there 
is literally the word you would use if you were going, if you were a soldier and you were going into battle. And remember, he's in jail, and there were many times he referred to it. He, he would have Roman soldiers guarding him. And at times um, he had two imprisonments. He had a Roman soldier that was literally chained to him. So to think about a soldier and fighting and warfare, many times in his writings, he refers to the, the, the word picture, the metaphor of fighting. And folks, it's a reality of the Christian life. We have an enemy and there are demonic forces and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. The Bible says we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. There is a spiritual battle, whether you believe it or not, there's an enemy who hates your guts, who hates the call of God in your lives, who wants to see you smash and burn and crash and not finish strong. And I want to tell you there is a fight. There is a fight. And the question is, this is the question, what fight are you fighting? Are you fighting the good fight? It's interesting, Paul defines that in his life he fought the good fight. Listen, there are many fights you can have. And you could be fighting, who knows? You could be fighting with your mother-in-law for who knows what, okay? God bless you if you, you know, if that's not you. And you could, or whoever, there's a work colleague and you're fighting them the whole time and it's just, and it's like, my question is, is that the good fight? Is that the fight God has for you? And are you fighting honorably even if you're fighting the enemy? Listen, folks, you don't have to lose your sanctification in the fight that you have. Um, end of the year, and our, our, our kids have, have been having their speech nights, their prize givings. And whenever you have a prize giving, they usually have a guest speaker who comes and speaks at the prize giving. And, and one of my children had a lady coming to speak, and she was a very high-achieving young, uh, I mean, when I say young, 30-something um, uh, young woman, South African, Zulu woman, and, you know, high achiever, done amazing things. She told this, <laughs> she told this joke. Well, she said she was in America at some important function a, a few years ago, and she said she, she managed to shake Barack Obama's hands. Her comment was, he had unusually soft hands. <laughs> so I thought that's an interesting comment. Okay. And she told this joke. Now the thing is, I've heard this joke before. So she says, Michelle, Michelle Obama and Barack, they go out to a fancy restaurant. And at, while they're sitting at the restaurant, the waiter who's serving them, Michelle recognizes this dude. And it turns out that this dude had been in high school with her. So she's chatting and reconnecting with him. And, and, and afterwards, Barack says to Michelle, well, aren't you glad you, you married me rather than him? So she says, well, why do you say that? So she said, well, if you'd been married to him, you'd be married to a waiter, but now you're married to the, the President of the United States of America. So she says, Barack, if I'd married him, he would be the President of the United States of America. <laughs> And I love that. I love that. You know, it's a story of influence. It's a story of discipleship. Okay. Um, I love that story. This lady who was speaking, who told the story, who shook, shook this guy with his strangely soft hands. Um, she said this. She started out a talk. And, and I was like, where are you going? And she made a good point from it. But her first, like, third of a talk, she spoke to these young people, high school students, and she was speaking to them about how hard life is about how tough life is and she spent a third of a talk telling these young people about how tough life is but hard life and I was like 
you're so young, you like in your early 30s, how come <laughs> you think it's so tough? And I was thinking about the last two, three years have really been tough. And I, I was also at, at, at uh, another child of mine's speech night, and I was struck by the speaker also telling the young people about how tough life is. And I've been to many speech nights, and I was like, you know, I don't remember so many people talking about how tough life is. Okay? Paul here talks about fighting a good fight. Folks, if you're in a fight, that means there's a battle going on. Yeah. And I want to tell you, there are absolutely battles. You've got to choose your battles. And this is the question. Are you fighting it in a good way? Are you fighting the battles God wants you to fight? Are, are you fighting battles you shouldn't be fighting because of your own stupidity? Of stupid things you've said and done gets you into stupid fights that you shouldn't be fighting. And listen, some of us have said, Oh, pastor, don't say that right now. Okay. I'm in the middle of a fight that I shouldn't be fighting. And it's so important. Folks in life, you know, fighting the fights that need to be fought and then wasting your time on fights that shouldn't be fought is so significant. So he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have finished the race. You know, when I was looking at 2 Timothy, because I'm going to finish this message, looking at two things that Paul said to Timothy as clues and keys for us to be able to finish our race strong. And one of the things he, he keeps exhorting Timothy, if you read what he says, Timothy was the pastor in the church of Ephesus. That's where he was when Paul was writing to him. That was his assignment, pastoring the church in Ephesus. Great church. Amazing assignment. I'm like, oh, I'd like that job. Great church. But he kept saying to Timothy, be true to your calling. Keep doing what God called you to do. Keep preaching the word in season and out of season. And, and you can go read those words. But what is it? What, your calling is the race you have. We've been looking at calling for the last We've been doing a series on calling. It is important. What is the race you have? It is the track God has marked out for you. It's different to the person right next to you, even if that's your spouse. Yes, there's an overlap if you're married. Absolutely. But you've got to be true to the track God has for you. And this is the question. Are you going to finish your race? Are you going to be true to your calling until the end? Amen. If you want to know about calling, just listen to the other messages on YouTube, SoundCloud, and everywhere on the internet. So, he finished the race. Folks, will you finish your race? I don't know if it's going to be six months or 60 years from now. But will you finish your race? And the last thing he says, I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. I have kept the faith. Folks, how is your faith? 20 years ago, we went through major trials. Uh, 22 years ago, I'm thinking. And Jenny got a prophetic word. said, your faith has been injured. Your faith has been punctured. Your faith is deflated, was the prophetic word. Not a great word to get. But it's reality of where she was. It was a time Jenny was flowing prophetically very strongly. Jenny has a strong prophetic anointing. Her faith was so impacted and punctured, she didn't want to share prophetically. In church, I mean, for years, um, you know, in the 90s, we helped to start His People Church in, in, in Port Elizabeth. You know, in a service, there would often, it would be rare that Jenny wouldn't get up and share a prophetic word in a service. Then there was the season where Jen's faith was injured that she didn't want to share. She was like, I don't know if I can hear from God. I don't know. I don't know if God speaks to me. It was a really difficult time for her life. But folks, today, I can say my wife, wife has kept the faith in terms of 
God speaks to me. I can hear His voice. And I will share with people what I feel He's saying. Have you, are you keeping the faith? There was a battle. It was a fight that Jenny had to go through. She had to fight the good faith of I am called to the prophetic. I do hear from God. And I will step out boldly, share prophetic words with people. And aren't you glad that she, she, she won that fight? How about you? In verse 8, Paul goes on to say, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. Ho, ho! Do you like that past? And to all who've longed for His appearing. Anybody here who's looking forward to Jesus returning one day? Amen? That's you and me. He's saying, listen, we're going to get the same kind of crown. The crown of righteousness. And you know the word for crown there? In those days, there were two words for crown. There was a crown that kings and emperors wore. It was a different word. He didn't use that word. When they did sports events and Olympic games and those kind of things, they also gave a crown. But it wasn't made of jewels and, and diamonds and gold and things like that. The crown you gave to a sportsman literally was a wreath that was wo woven, a, a laurel wreath that was woven and put on the head. And, and he uses that word. And you know what word it is? It is the word Stephanus. And Stephanus is the name of Stephen who was martyred. Paul the Apostle, as he was known as Saul then, was standing there. He oversaw the martyrdom of Stephen. He heard Stephen say, I'm seeing Jesus standing up for him. Here he is now, 30, 40 years later. And he's saying, I'm going to get the Stephanus. I'm going to get the same reward Stephen got. Jesus is going to stand for me. Jesus is waiting for me. Do you see the connection? I believe when Stephen said those words and when it stayed with Paul his whole life, I want to get the reward that Stephen got. I'm going to get that reward. And folks, this is, he says, he says over here, and not only to me, but also to all have longed for His appearing. Folks, one day when we get to heaven, we're going to get crowns. The Bible describes them crowns of righteousness. Crowns of righteousness. Before all of eternity, Jesus is going to honor you and me with crowns. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but let me tell you, it is going to be phenomenal. And the Bible reveals in its Revelation 4 that the elders, what do we do with our crowns? The elders took off their crowns and they threw it before the king. Folks, what do you do with honor you get from God? You get to give that honor straight back to him. You say, Jesus, it's because you. You enabled me to do that, to achieve that, to go there, to say that, to, to, to outwork that, to build that business, to get that degree, to lead that person to the Lord, to pray for that person. To disciple that, uh, that connect group. Jesus, you enabled. It was your grace. Thank you for this crown. I give it back to you. You know, we've just had prize givings. And it's one of the things that I've always tried to do with my kids. Once they've had a prize giving, they've got some prizes. That night when we pray together, I will say, can we now take all those prizes and we throw our crowns at the feet of Jesus. We honor Him because He gave you the ability to do that. He gave the ability to study that way or dance that way or sing that way. Whatever you did that you got an accolade for, we get to honor God with it. Amen? Isn't that so beautiful? Because he, He's honoring us. Next slide. In the Christian life, it's not how you start that matters. It's how you finish that matters. So it doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. Your finish is ahead of you. You can still finish well. Amen? You can still finish well. 
And just in the Amplified Bible, in the next slide, I want to highlight verse 7, where he says, I have fought the good, in brackets, the Amplified says, worthy, honorable, and noble fight. Folks, when we talk about fighting, we don't fight dirty. We don't get nasty, bitter, and twisted, and jealous, and envious, and, and, and arrogant, and proud, and all that carnal stuff. Folks, how do we do this fight? What's a good fight? Where we, it's worthy, honorable, and noble. Amen. Let's move on. We've done the next slide. I want to talk to you about this guy. Do you guys know this guy? Billy Graham. How many of you do, do not honestly know Billy Graham? Not of him. Not personally. You, you've heard of Billy Graham. Okay, there we go. So he passed away in 2018, folks. He was 99 years old. I'm like, oh, Billy, couldn't you just hang on to 100? Anyway, he lived from 1918 to 2018. He was known as America's pastor. He spoke to folks face to face. People who saw his face in his lifetime. 80 million people face to face. There's recorded 3 million people came to Christ through his preaching. He was from the 1950s. Every year America does these, these various surveys. And, they, and, and, and for years... He was voted the, one of the top 10 most admired people in America. He, he carried huge respect. Every American president from the 1950s sought, sought the face and the prayers of Billy Graham. He prayed for, I don't know how many, I've, I've seen the list of all the presidents. He's outlived so many of the American presidents. Uh, really an amazing man of God. But... He started ministry in 1945, and do you know when he started his ministry in 1945, there were, there were two other guys who were, who were actually more well-known than him, upstart uh, preachers. So I want to read here, and this is from the book Finishing Strong. 1945 was an absolutely unbelievable year for rookie evangelists. In that year, 27-year-old Billy Graham came storming out of seemingly nowhere to fill auditoriums across America, speaking to as many as 30,000 people a night. Billy was hired as the first full-time evangelist for Youth for Christ, and his reputation as a uniquely gifted preacher roared across America like a prairie fire. The rest, of course, is history. You've heard of Billy Graham, but what about Chuck Templeton or Bron Clifford? Any, anybody know about them? You know. Walter knows them. Okay, well done, Walter. Have you ever heard of them? Billy Graham wasn't the only young preacher packing auditoriums in 1945. Chuck Templeton and Bron Clifford were accomplishing the same thing and more. All three young men were in their mid-twenties. One seminary president, after hearing Chuck Templeton preach one evening to an audience of thousands, called him the most gifted and talented man in America today for preaching. Templeton and Graham were friends. Both ministered for Youth for Christ. Both were extraordinary preachers. Yet in those early years, most observers would probably have put their money on Templeton. As a matter of fact, in 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals published an article on men who were best used of God. In that organization's five-year existence, the article highlighted the ministry of Chuck Templeton. Billy Graham was never even mentioned. Templeton, many felt, would be the next Babe Ruth of evangelism. He's a famous baseball player in America. 
Bron Clifford was yet another gifted 25-year-old fireball. In 1945, many believed Clifford the most gifted and powerful preacher the church had seen in centuries. In that same year, Clifford preached to an auditorium of thousands in Miami, Florida. People lined up 10, 12 deep outside the auditorium trying to get in. Later that same year, when Clifford was preaching in the chapel at Chapel University, the president ordered class bells turned off so that the young man could minister without interruption to the student body. For two hours and 15 minutes, guys, are you looking at the time there? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm doing you in. You're not getting value for money here, okay? For two hours and 15 minutes, he kept those students on the edge of their seats as he preached on the subject of Christ and the philosopher's stone. At the age of 25, young Clifford touched more lives, influenced more leaders, and set more attendance records than any other clergyman his age in American history. National, leader vi national leaders vied for his attention. He was tall, handsome, intelligent, and eloquent. Hollywood invited him to audition for the part of Mar Marcellus in, in the movie The Robe. It seemed as if he had everything at his feet. Graham, Templeton, and Clifford. In 1945, all three came shooting out of the starting blocks like rockets. You've heard of Billy Graham. So how come you've never heard of Chuck Templeton or Bron Clifford? Especially when they came out of the chute so strong in 1945. Just five years later, Templeton left the ministry to pursue a career in radio and television, comment, uh, and television commentator. Templeton had decided that he no longer believed in Christ. By 1950, this future... Babe Ruth of the ministry wasn't even in the game and no longer believed in the claims of Jesus Christ. What about Clifford? By 1954, Clifford had lost his family, he'd lost his ministry, he's lost his health, and then he lost his life. Alcohol and financial irresponsibility had done him up. He wound up leaving his wife and their two Down syndrome children at just the age of 35. This once great preacher died from cirrhosis of the liver in a rundown motel on the edge of Amarillo. His last job was selling used cars in the panhandle of Texas. He died, as John Haggai put it, unwept, unhonored, and unsung. Some pastors in Amarillo took up a collection among themselves in order to purchase a casket, that's a coffin, so that his body could be shipped back east for a decent burial in a cemetery reserved for the poor. In 1945, three young men with extraordinary gifts were preaching the gospel to multiplied thousands across the nation. Within 10 years, only one of them was still on track for Christ. In the Christian life, it's not how you start that matters. It's how you finish. It's not how you start that matters. It's how you finish. On the next slide, I put some names over there. Shama, Shafat. Igal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amil, Seshthur, Nabi, Ugul. How many of you know friends or family who've named their children those names? Let me ask you this. How many of you know somebody who's called their children, their sons, Joshua and Caleb? How come Joshua and Caleb were the same generation? Moses was instructed to choose a leader from each of the 12 tribes. Joshua and Caleb were just two of those leaders. These were the most promising, on fire, you know, gifted and anointed leaders of each of those tribes. 
Ten of them went into the promised land, came back full of unbelief, said we can't do it. Two of them came back and said we can do it. Today we name our children Joshua and Caleb. We don't call our children Shama, Shaphat, Igal, Palti, Gadel. It's the same with the names of those other two guys. Folks, starting does not give an indication of how you're going to finish. Last week and the week before, I spoke about Paul's heritage on the next slide. And I did this present day parallel to Paul the Apostle. And, and I spoke about how he would speak to Chinese philosophers and theology in Oxford and, um, you know, in Brazil. What I did, this, this was a modern day example that was actually out of date. It was a, and, and so I updated it. So I changed a couple of things to make it more relevant. In the last line I said, Paul today would be like a guy who writes encouraging letters to humble believers in churches. He planted to build them up in their faith. And help them live God-honoring lives. Last week on my slide, it was to help them live God-honoring lives. When I previously put the slide up, I had the phrase, victorious lives. And I changed it. And you know, it has been something that has just really convicted me. Do I believe that God wants us to live victorious lives? Absolutely. I mean, Paul, Paul writes in his scriptures that we are more than conquerors. That's, that's victorious language. I change that phrase to help them live God-honoring lives. You know why? In our world today, people have a very dangerous concept of what victory looks like as a believer. For many people, victory means you achieve your goals at all costs. It doesn't matter who you are. Walk over, run over, smash up in the process of you achieving your goal. But if you're a Christian, you've got to achieve your goal. If you don't achieve your goal, well, then you're not a success. Folks, maybe your goal is not aligned with God's goals for your life. So if you don't achieve it, if you don't achieve it, does that mean you're not living a God-honoring life? What is God saying for your life? Set goals. Goals are beautiful. But what happens to you if you somehow can't achieve your goal? How about making goals? I'm going to honor God with my whole life. I'm going to set goals. But if I don't achieve my goal, I'm not going to stop honoring God, stop serving God, deny Christ, etc. I'm going to live a God-honoring life. In the, today's concept of victory is you win in sports. It's all about winning. Well, what happens if you lose? You know, sometimes if you lose that sports game, God does more in your life through losing than if you won. Because what can God do with a proud, arrogant person who thinks, you know, his golf or his hockey or his a soccer, he's the best in the world? What can God do with such a person? Sometimes I'm telling you, it is better for you that you don't win that soccer game. Because what can God do with a proud, arrogant, you know, soccer player? How is he going to use you? And so I changed it. And I was, I just, this, this phrase is, I absolutely believe. That we are meant to be victorious in Christ. I think our concept of victory is sometimes really messed up. We align with the world's concept of victory and it does not honor God. Folks, God wants us to live God-honoring lives. In finishing strong, when Steve Farrar, on the next slide, when he wrote the book, he wrote to a guy who was editing his book and, and he asked for feedback. And this guy made 
the following comments. Just go back. Don't put the comments up. Just click back. This guy made these comments. I want to just introduce the comments. He wrote this letter to, to Steve Farrar about this book. And he said, Steve, I'm worried that in you writing your book, you are painting the picture that to be victorious, now Steve Farrar, right, it's written to men, so excuse the masculine language. He said, I'm worried that you are painting this picture that for you to finish strong, for you to win the race, you need to be this kind of superhuman, he-man guy that, that from his, your own strength, your own volition, your own self-will, you've willed yourself to win this race and you are like the superhuman. And he was like, Steve, I'm worried that the picture you're painting in writing this book paints a picture of a guy that most of us can't relate to and biblically is not the kind of life we mean to be living. Steve Farrar is a, is a Christian guy. And this guy wrote this and he put it in his book. He said, I couldn't have put it better. And he put this and he wrote this. Strong men fall. Full stop. I was like, should I underline that? Strong men fall. Weak men, inverted commas. Who find their strength in another don't fall. We won't finish strong because of our own strength or our own wisdom or our own courage or our own perseverance or any other human quality if we finish strong. It will only be because we have tapped into the ultimate strength, limitless wisdom, the fount of courage, the source of perseverance, Jesus. He will get us across the finish line. The very gates of hell cannot make us stumble unless we choose to remove ourselves from His protection and power. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Weak men who find their strength in another don't fall. <laughs> okay, um, I said he's writing to men, so ladies, please don't exit. Okay, please don't leave. Let me say... Weak Christians who find their strength in another don't fall. I, I, just, I just love this. And the last line, last sentence. The very gates of hell cannot make us stumble unless we choose to remove ourselves from His protection and His power. Folks, as a believer, you have divine protection and power. The problem is, you know... Sin is you actually are willfully stepping out of his divine protection and power. So don't come there and say, oh golly, you know, a train hit me because I was walking in the tracks and not looking. Why were you walking in the tracks? The very gates of hell cannot make us stumble unless we choose to remove ourselves from his protection and power. Eugene Peterson said on the next slide, a long obedience in the same direction. I've spoken about that at least twice in the last three years. A long obedience in the, in the same direction. So what did Paul say to Timothy? He's finishing strong and he's wanting this young man to finish strong as well. What advice do you give, folks, when you know Nero is soon going to call me and we soon exit. I'm, I'm, I'm at the departure lounge. I'm waiting for the call over the intercom. He says this to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3 verse 10. But you, Timothy have closely followed my example and the truth that I've imparted to you. You have modeled your life after the love and endurance I've demonstrated in my ministry by not giving up. The faith I have 
you now have. What I've hungered for in life has now become your longing as well. The patience I have with others, you now demonstrate. And the same persecutions and difficulties I have endured, you have also endured. Timothy has followed his mentor, his spiritual father. And, Timothy, and, and Paul saying, listen, Timothy, you're going to make it, Tim. Because I see in you the same things that I imparted into you. And remember Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. These are character traits we see in Jesus. These are character traits Paul saw in Jesus. And he said, Timothy, follow these traits and you'll be okay. You'll be okay. How do we finish strong, folks? I believe it's key to have life-giving relationships in your life. Folks, people who can be there when the chips are down and you may have stumbled or you're in the middle of a hectic fight. People who you know will pray for you, who will stand there for you, who will give you wise counsel, who will listen to you, who may let you cry when you need to cry, who will hold you when you just need to be held, who will just listen when you just need to talk. Life-giving relationships. Folks, I can't overemphasize connect groups, for example, in our local church. Those are spaces that you can connect, that Timothy's can connect with Paul's, and Paul's can connect with Timothy's. And I want to say to you, Paul's need Timothy's more than Timothy's ever realize they are needed. I am so disappointed. I've been more disappointed in my life by Timothy's who don't realize how much I have valued them as a Timothy and just think, oh well, thank you very much, Pastor. That was great. Cheers, Amaria. Folks, there's a time, and if you read this letter, Paul's yearning for Timothy. He's longing for Timothy. The one thing in the jail he's longing for is that Timothy would, could be with him and visit him. And I want to say, I don't know what that looks like for you. Paul also had Barnabas, who had mentored him and discipled him, etc., I'm looking at the time, I'm aware we, we we're going on. And I actually have a few more slides, but don't worry, next week we'll, we'll finish it next week. I want to conclude with this. Who are you following as an example? Who are the people? And if you haven't got people, are you praying that you would find those kind of people in your life? Can we pray? I want to pray for you. I just want to pray simply that, you, that we would finish strong. And you know, I want us to go to that slide, the slide where it has, I fought the fight, finished the race. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 to 8. I want to pray that for us. Guys, I, we, we sometimes, we haven't done this in, in ages because of COVID. We're a spiritual family, and if you're not happy with us, it's fine. But how about reaching across the, the, to the person next to you and just holding their hand? You may be holding a potential Timothy or, or, or Paul. I don't know. But folks, Paul was finishing strong. In this book, he mentions 23 people by name. He was deeply connected relationally to people. He was not alone. He was alone in a cell, absolutely. But he had not disconnected himself relationally. I want to say it's one of the main reasons we know Paul was finishing strong is he had people around him who loved him and cared for him, prayed for him, 
provided for him. And I want to pray that for us. Lord Jesus, as we hold hands, God, I pray that you would divinely show us who the hands you want us to walk with, who the hands you want us to talk with. God, as Paul had Timothy and Timothy had Paul, God, I believe that's your will for all of us. And Paul had Barnabas. Lord God, I pray you provide Barnabases and Pauls and Timothys for us. God, that we may finish strong, that we may say one day, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Maybe we can pray those prayers. Just pray those words together. Could you maybe repeat after me? Say, Lord Jesus, I pray these words of Paul the Apostle. And I ask you, Lord, that I would fight the good fight to the end. That I would finish the race, Lord. The calling you have for me. And Lord, I would keep the faith right to the end. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Spiritual moms and dads. That we don't need to walk alone. Thank you for spiritual family. And most importantly, Lord, that we can honor you by finishing strong. In Jesus' name. And the people of God said? Amen. And the people of God shouted? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message. For more information, please visit our website at www.hispeoplepmb.co.za. And for more of our messages, visit our YouTube and SoundCloud channels, as well as other podcast platforms. If you would like to contact us, please email us at hispeoplepmb at gmail.com or send a message to 061-452-0877. We hope to see you soon. God bless you.